Hi, everyone. Welcome to Orthopod. I'm here with uh, two colleagues and very respected trauma surgeons uh, in the United States. Here with Bob Zura, who's a professor of orthopedics and a, a friend and colleague as well, Dr. Samir uh, Mehta, who is also an associate professor uh, of orthopedics. Gentlemen, hello. Hey, Bo. Hello. How are you? So I, I wish we were speaking on slightly different terms, but you know, the last three months there's been, a, as you know, a, a massive, massive shift in the way we practice uh, fracture care. I'm curious from your perspective, um, how fracture care has been impacted at your um, respective institutions. Uh, I wonder, um, Samir, if things have changed. So uh, from a surgical perspective, we're uh, essentially as busy as we were before the pandemic, uh, before the uh, stay-at-home orders. Uh, you know, as you can imagine, our health system has a certain budget for us to be able to hit in terms of uh, caseload and, and patient volume. Uh, and on the orthopedic trauma side, we were able to meet those numbers uh, for the month of March, uh, as well as for the month of April. What's interesting though, I think, is the kind of traumas that we're seeing. Uh, we seem to be seeing more ballistic injuries, uh, unfortunately more what appears to be suicide attempts or falls from heights. Um, we're, so we're seeing a different kind of trauma because people are actually in our area, uh, for the most part, ascribing to the stay at home orders. Uh, one example is uh, I took care of a, a police officer recently. He was sort of more home than usual. His kids are home from school because um, uh, they're off as well uh, from all the orders. And uh, he trips over one of the toys that's in the house that he's not used to being in and around, and he breaks his ankle, right? Not a typical injury that we no. would get in this environment with that kind of patient. So we're seeing some sort of unique injuries, but we're still seeing acute tra traumatic uh, 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 events. So Bob, have you seen the same um, issues happening uh, at your institution? Uh, trauma basically remaining the same, but a slightly a different form of trauma? Yeah, I think that's really interesting, uh, Mo, that, uh, and Samir, that it's happening that way in Philadelphia. It's, it's been a little bit of a different curve here. Uh, you and I have talked previously about this, Mo. One, right before uh, we really got shut down, we had Mardi Gras. Uh, so we had a lot of cold trauma left over from that that was starting to show up as uh, we got shut down. So we weren't able to treat that. And then very reminiscent of 9-11, our trauma just went stone cold silent uh, for about a week or two, where we could almost expect nothing on call, um, you know, the random case. And then just like Samir said, the ballistic injuries started up again where we were starting to get multiple gunshots every night. We cynically thought that may happen and it did. Uh, and as people started, I think, stretching the boundaries of the orders and started getting out more, we started to see more and more of our typical trauma. So we went down dramatically, even with Mardi Gras having been here. We increased with uh, ballistic injuries, and now we're starting to see more of our typical pattern of motor vehicle accidents. But much like Samir said, I actually expected we would see more of these at-home injuries. I thought people would be on their roofs or on their ladders, but we're not even really seeing that. But we're starting to get a big influx of things like ankle fractures from not usual activities, and we're starting to see older fractures too. We had an ankle fracture coming yesterday that was four weeks old just because the patient was afraid to come to our hospital. New Orleans was an epicenter for a week, and I think that uh, has some uh, some institutional memory in the community, so people just haven't been coming to us. 
Yeah, the, so you know the, the two oh, okay. I'm sorry, the two week old hip fracture. I, uh, Monday I'm doing a woman yeah. two week. She's been in a wheelchair because she didn't have to come. I didn't want to come into yeah. the hospital. It's it's really fascinating to see some of that transition happening um, to these uh, to these patients choosing not to come in for the care of their injuries. It's, the other thing where I'm seeing a lot of is stress fractures. I've got a, a couple of femoral neck and tibial stress fractures. I think because people are at home. They yeah. are um, they're being a lot more active or trying to be active when they haven't been because they have some more time on their hands. And so a lot of this stuff feeds into our ortho trauma clinics. Um, so it's interesting to see these sort of things I normally don't see. And, you know, and what you guys are both describing is pretty well happening around the world. So, you know, we've had like had the opportunity to speak with um, surgeons in Italy and Spain and also in India recently. Oh, in Sweden. Every one of them says exactly this. There's been a complete shift from the high energy, you know, MVA crashes to at home uh, and the more, you know, you would call it fragility fracture, fall from a standing height type of injury. So the elderly and quite frankly, the most vulnerable of the patients who are at risk, I guess, in this environment of COVID-19 are the ones that they are often having to treat. Some and many of them being COVID positive. Have you had any COVID positive patients um, that you've been treating and how's that? in terms of outcomes and in terms of your perception of the impact of COVID actually on the care? So I've had to operate on a, a, a few COVID positive patients. I just uh, did a tailless fracture recently and somebody who um, came in with uh, who was COVID positive picked up in our emergency room and then um, isolated. He was asymptomatic but positive for COVID. We have a process in place for these patients with uh, designated anesthesia teams, a designated OR, and a, a process in terms of how the room is entered. Uh, once you enter the room, you can't leave, no papers in the room, et cetera, et cetera. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, as a provider, because the process has been so well delineated and defined um, and almost checklist, if you will, um, I didn't feel uncomfortable uh, obviously, you think about it, but uh, you know, I didn't look at this any different than any other, you know, universal precautions type scenario. Um, so, yeah, it was, you know, we've we've had to we've had patients we've had to operate on hip fractures, mm -hmm. pelvic ring injuries, acetabular fractures um, that can't be managed non-operatively. And so, it, the process, as long as it's defined and and everyone knows their role, um, it's worked. It's so far worked quite well. Oh, that's pretty good. Do you have any sense, uh, I, and I, I guess before I jump to that, Bob, have you had any experience uh, at all with the COVID positive patients in trauma? Yeah, we have. Uh, we've experienced it on both ends. One, you know, some that we're finding out after the fact that they were COVID positive. Uh, and then you have the, you know, the, the reaching out to the team and, and concern that we perhaps didn't follow all the same regulations. And we've also had some folks that are known COVID that we've operated on same same idea as uh, what Samir is saying is uh, that you know if we think the fracture needs surgical care, we'll still intervene. Uh, in all the cases that we've had, at least, uh, if they're COVID positive, we have protocols in place that vary and seem to change frequently as we develop them. But we're intubating in another room, we're isolating hallways, we're we're cleaning the rooms a little bit more afterwards. Same sort of thing about traffic in the room. Uh, we're wearing N95s. Uh, so that's. Uh, but it hasn't changed our care uh, at this point. I haven't had someone that we were going to operate on find that they're COVID positive and then decide not to. That hasn't happened yet. In I also worry, I'm sorry to speak over no, you. I also worry a little bit. I had a, uh, a, a diabetic uh, unstable ankle that we fixed. 
And I kept that patient in the hospital because uh, her sugars were 400 over the weekend uh, after we fixed her. And uh, I have anxiety on a couple levels. One, some of the very early and rudimentary papers out of uh, China or Singapore mm -hmm. had every single patient you operated on died. So yeah. I certainly don't want to put my patients at more risk because of a fracture, but also that's a bit of a stressor on my system. I've now exposed many more healthcare workers to this patient uh, and, and keeping them in house. And, and, and I worry about that. But that being said, at this point, I'm still being a little bit myopic about the fracture. And if they need surgery, we yep. proceed just like we did when we trained when HIV was evolving. You know, you, universal precautions, yep. take care of people. You know, and that's will, exactly I, the... Oh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, sir. But and I was going to say, I will say that it has sometimes changed my approach in the sense that we've been a lot more aggressive with using regional blocks. We've been a lot more aggressive about trying to uh, discharge patients right from recovery. Sometimes we've historically we don't admit things like ankles and distal radii, but clearly operative ones instead of sending them home, bringing them back, coming to clinic, filling out paperwork. We've said admit them, and we've actually fixed them and then discharged them home right from the OR as opposed to going back to the floor. Um, so we're doing a few things from a process perspective that are maybe a little bit different for those things that are clearly, as Bob said, are operative and we're not going to neglect care. We should not do care in this scenario. Um, the other thing that I've done is simple things like closing wounds with absorbable sutures so that I can do telemedicine with the patient post-operatively, which I'm not, I've never been a traditional absorbable suture closer person. I've usually used something that's more you know, just dogmatic about that staples or nylons or something. Yeah. But I am doing more things like that where I don't have to bring the patient back um, just for suture removal. And I can do their care remotely um, and not have to worry about that kind of stuff. Well, I mean, these are all like, I mean, sort of the critical um, approaches that we're going to have to do probably for the next months, I would imagine, if not, you know, if not pushing up into even 2021. Do you both have um, any insight or perception around um, COVID itself and the positivity actually leading to a worse outcome. I mean, obviously there's the there's the challenge of you know all the distancing and the delays that couldn't obviously have impacts on outcome. But someone that you know you've operated on a patient with with COVID positive, do you believe that in and of itself is likely to lead to their to to a complication, or have you had that experience? There's been lots of discussion, right, from case series in hip fracture patients saying that the mortality rates are very very high. It's hard to untangle that because hip fracture patients already have such a difficult, you know, um, outcome structure that it's hard to, to understand that. But in a otherwise healthy patient population, are you seeing any adverse events of COVID itself? I have not seen, yeah. you know, something I could come back and say it was COVID that had an effect on their morbidity or mortality. Okay. Obviously, there's some case reports about some kind of coagulopathy that may be associated with this. Right. Uh, from an orthopedic surgery and injury perspective, I have not seen that. And okay. like you said, some of these patient populations are at risk. Um, so that's, I, it's hard to separate that out. Yeah, yeah. Same for me, Mo, our, our end's too small at this point and, and our experience actually hasn't been negative uh, to date. So as you look to the future, um, Things are going to slowly reopen. We are already in, in many countries starting reopening early phases and some are a bit further along uh, than others. We can learn from what's already happening in other countries that never really close. I mean, Sweden, for example, is you know sort of the world's barometer on what happens when you kind of let things continue. Um, what do you think is going to change for you in trauma care, let's say in the next six months? I mean, we're, you know, we're heading into mid-2020. What do you see happening? 
I think we're, we are going to a lot more aggressive uh, platform with telemedicine, yeah. uh, having patients get x-rays remotely, creating a cloud, a HIPAA compliant cloud for them to be able to upload their x-rays. Um, so we're definitely going more in that direction. Uh, in fact, earlier today, I did a, a number of uh, telemedicine visits, including a distal radius that I'm treating non-operatively. Um, he's already immobilized. Um, it's well reduced. Uh, I'm able to look at the x-rays that he gets. Um, I'm able to prescribe, uh, uh, in his case, I'm prescribing him an exogen to help facilitate his fracture healing so that um, we can not have him end up with a malunion or nonunion. Uh, and now I'm doing his surgery six months from now because I neglected his care or, or didn't optimize his care. Huh. So um, I think telemedicine is going to be really important. I also think that uh, uh, it is going to affect some of my surgical decision making in terms of, you know, there may be fractures that we're on the fence about, uh, but yeah. bringing the patient in has its own risks involved. Um, so I think, I think obviously there's always the concern about the elective orthopedic trauma practice, the non-unions, mal-unions. I am, will be honest when I say I haven't seen those patients in my telemedicine clinic or my in-person clinic uh, in, a, in a while, and I, I typically have a, a, a decent amount of those patients, and I, I don't know if they're just staying away right now, uh, but um, I do think there'll be an impact with, with that uh, in respect to orthopedic trauma. So, Bob, in that situation um, where you've got, you know, we're looking now, I mean, like the truth is there's going to be a backlog. And I think you and I have talked about the backlog already previously. It's going to get worse, not better, because we're just not going to be able to open up things in the way. I imagine that you're in the same boat as many other countries, maybe not. But, you know, in Canada, for example, they're saying we're only going to let capacity get above 80%. We always want to have 20% capacity to manage any surge. So even whatever what, whatever normal looks like, it's at minimum a 20% reduction of what normal used to look like. Those patients who aren't getting fracture care uh, surgery, what's been your algorithm for trying to help those patients and try to optimize their care so they don't end up in a complication? Yeah, that's right, Mo. We have, we have chatted about this some, and and I think you uh, you hit it right on the head with the with the process. Uh, we're not to the point where they're telling us 80% capacity or or issues like that. We're in evolution of opening up right now. We're at 25% or so of our OR evolving to 50% over the next week or two. Uh, limited uh, a lot actually by our supply chain, uh, not necessarily PPE, just supply chain of certain things that have been tough for us to get. But regardless, your point's absolutely on point. One, we're, we're not gonna be at full capacity for a long time. And two, I don't know what form it's going to take. I don't know if there's fractures that they just haven't come in. I suspect there's some of that. Are there patients who are going to be desperate to get back to work when we, they can get back to work and ignore their injury? But I, I, I totally agree that in the next few months, we're going to have a, a large volume of, if you will, ignored fractures. They may be ignored because we're just not fixing any clavicles during COVID regardless of displacement. You know, we, yeah. we've sort of arbitrarily chosen certain fractures. So we know we're going to have a run of non-unions or at-risk fractures for, for malalignment or malunion or non-union. Yeah. So uh, I, I don't I assume, you know, the, the right answers will treat each person individually. But we're going to have to start to identify which, which ones are causing functional problems uh, and what are our options. You know, like Samir mentioned, you know, will we use bone growth stimulation? Will we be more aggressive with early non-union surgery, where we change our, our definition of 
when we intervene uh, because we think this, these people are at higher risk or moving down the wrong path. I'm, I'm not really sure what form it's going to take. Yeah. Uh, but like we've talked about previously, we're going to have a really interesting group of, of delayed at-risk fracture patients. I mean, it seems at the very minimum that we're going to have to be venturing into, as both of you have suggested, uh, ways in which we haven't necessarily invested in the past, which is virtual care, optimizing non-operative treatment, looking for modalities you know, that can help us optimize patients at that point, and also looking to the future to say, you know, who needs to be prioritized, who needs surgery, ultimately who, who doesn't need surgery. Maybe on the, on the last point for both of you, you both of you obviously uh, are, are very thoughtful individuals and I know have been thinking pretty heavily about this issue. Is there any one key learning point that, that you wanna share with you know, sort of our, our viewing group uh, of surgeons and, um, and therapists and primary care docs who watch uh, these podcasts? Any sort of words of just, I wouldn't say advice, but just reflection on how, how this has impacted you in your day-to-day -day practice? Maybe I'll start with you, Samir. So I, I I watch some of my colleagues who have more of an elective practice than me, um, and I was obviously con concerned that it would also have an impact. Um, one of the things that uh, I think has helped is the fact that I've, and I think sometimes as orthopedic trauma surgeons, you know, we whatever comes in, we'll take care of. But I will say that I've taken a fairly, um, I mean, I don't even use the word aggressive, but I've, I've taken up on telemedicine um, and uh, communicating with my patients, um, being accessible for patients, new patients even, being open-minded about uh, how care delivery can be done and performed, uh, working with uh, my staff, uh, our administrative team, as well as our vendors, um, you know, whether it's braces or bone stimulators or whatnot, um, right. to be able to provide care remotely. And what you find is that it's doable and it's possible. Um, I know people who've said, I'm not doing telemedicine, I'm just gonna wait till it opens up. And yeah. now that things are opening up, they're just, they're not seeming to ramp up because I think they, yeah. they didn't maintain that flow and that cue. And so yeah. um, I think having that open mind to be able to adopt and adapt to the new technologies out there has been really, uh, really important. Oh, that's great, thanks, Samir. Bob, anything to add to that? Yeah, it's never easy to follow Samir. Uh, <laughs> and, and if I have things that are unique from what he said, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm a little bit of a naysayer on telemedicine uh, for orthopedics. I think it's we're a hands-on and, and radiograph-based specialty, but I think what he said was absolutely on point. Uh, and I've been forced, and I think all of us have been forced, to uh, kind of reevaluate our take on some of these things. And, and, and it's not because I'm stubborn about it. It's because the patients need access. Uh, and they need insight into what's going on. Uh, and I think along those lines, again, you ask not from an advice standpoint, but you know, we're not the front line of the COVID uh, event. Uh, you, you know, you can all pick your favorite group, but it's intensivists, it's medicine doctors, it's ER doctors, and it's nurses by far. I mean, they're the ones going in the rooms. But that doesn't mean what's happening in orthopedics is unimportant and, and not impacted by uh, COVID and that we can't have an effect. Because I do think we have to find a way to get these patients optimized, regardless of the disease, you know, labral injury in the shoulder, ACL, hip fracture, whatever it may be, because people are gonna wanna get back to work as soon as they can. So we are an important factor in this whole, uh, whole uh, situation, and, and it's so important that we offer our patient every different avenue possible. So I agree with Samir. 
You know, I mean, the one thing, and I'll, I'll close on this point, uh, gentlemen, and that one thing I've, I've seen a lot of, um, there's been a, there's a ton of ways and people have approached this experience. And I think you both have kind of given your examples of people you know and how you've reacted, but there's been either a paralysis or there's been another group that's been very proactive. And I think there really hasn't been too much of a middle ground of it. Um, and I do think that those of us who have been able to at least be thinking ahead and proactively evaluating whatever we have to evaluate using the information we can are probably going to be the way they're going to be finding these new protocols that are going to help us move into this, whatever the next new normal looks like. I can't thank you both enough for being two very proactive individuals and uh, helping us think through this. And I think, um, you know, we'll for sure want to have you back um, uh, at a, you know at another period so we can kind of see how things have progressed and whether or not the, the plans you have have been envisioned the way you hoped. Thank you both gentlemen for taking time today.